Chapters 5 through 11 of On Virginity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Virginity by St. Gregory of Nyssa, translated by William Moore and Henry Austin Wilson. Chapter 5. Now we declare that virginity is man's fellow worker and helper in achieving the aim of this lofty passion. In other sciences, men have devised certain practical methods for cultivating the particular subject, and so, I take it, virginity is the practical method in the science of the divine life, furnishing men with the power of assimilating themselves with spiritual natures. The constant endeavor in such a course is to prevent the nobility of the soul from being lowered by those sensual outbreaks in which the mind no longer maintains its heavenly thoughts and upward gaze but sinks down to the emotions belonging to the flesh and blood how can the soul which is riveted to the pleasures of the flesh and busied with merely human longings turn a disengaged eye upon its kindred intellectual light this evil ignorant and prejudiced bias towards material things will prevent it the eyes of swine, turning naturally downward, have no glimpse of the wonders of the sky. No more can the soul whose body drags it down look any longer upon the beauty above. It must pour perforce upon things which, though natural, are low and animal. To look with a free devoted gaze upon heavenly delights, the soul will turn itself from earth. It will not even partake of the recognized indulgences of the secular life. It will transfer all its powers of affection from material objects to the intellectual contemplation of immaterial beauty. Virginity of the body is devised to further such a disposition of the soul. It aims at creating in it a complete forgetfulness of natural emotions. It would prevent the necessity of ever descending to the call of fleshly needs. Once freed from such, the soul runs no risk of becoming through a growing habit of indulging in that which seems to a certain extent conceded by nature's law, inattentive and ignorant of divine and undefiled delights. Purity of heart, that master of our lives, alone can capture them. Chapter 6 This, I believe, makes the greatness of the prophet Elias, and of whom who afterwards appeared in the spirit and power of Elias, than whom of those that are born of women there was none greater matthew twelve eleven if their history conveys any other mystic lesson surely this above all is taught by their special mode of life that the man whose thoughts are fixed upon the invisible is necessarily separated from all ordinary events of life his judgments as to the true good cannot be confused and led astray by the deceits arising from the senses both from their youth upwards, exiled themselves from human society, and in a way from human nature, in their neglect of the usual delights of meat and drink, and their sojourn in the desert. The wants of each were satisfied by the nourishment that came in their way, so that their taste might remain simple and unspoilt, as their ears were free from any distracting noise, and their eyes from any wandering look. Thus they attained a cloudless calm of soul and were raised to that height of divine favor which scripture records of each elias for instance and became the dispenser of god's earthly gifts he had authority to close at will the uses of the sky against the sinners and to open them to the penitent john is not said indeed to have done any miracle but the gift in him was pronounced by him who sees the secrets of a man greater than any prophet's 
This was so, we may presume, because both, from beginning to end, so dedicated their hearts to the Lord that they were unsullied by any earthly passion, because the love of wife or child or any other human call did not intrude upon them, and they did not even think their daily sustenance worthy of anxious thought, because they showed themselves to be above any magnificence of dress, and made shift with that which chance offered them, one clothing himself in goat-skins, the other with camel's hair. It is my belief that they would not have reached to this loftiness of spirit if marriage had softened them. This is not simple history only. It is written for our admonition, 1 Corinthians 10.11, that we might direct our lives by theirs. What, then, do we learn thereby? This, that the man who longs for union with God must, like those saints, detach his mind from all worldly business. It is impossible for the mind which is poured into many channels to win its way to the knowledge and the love of God. Chapter 7. An illustration will make our teaching on this subject clearer. Imagine a stream flowing from a spring and dividing itself off into a number of accidental channels. As long as it proceeds to do so, it will be useless for any purpose of agriculture, the dissipation of its waters making each particular current small and feeble, and therefore slow. But if one were to mass these wandering and wildly dispersed rivulets again into one single channel, he would have a full and collected stream for the supplies which life demands. Just so the human mind, so it seems to me, as long as its current spreads itself in all directions over the pleasures of the sense, has no power that is worth the naming of making its way towards the real good. But once call it back and recollect it upon itself, so that it may begin to move without scattering and wandering toward the activity which is congenital and natural to it, it will find no obstacle in mounting to higher things and in grasping realities. We often see water contained in a pipe, bursting upwards through this constraining force, which will not let it leak, and this in spite of its natural gravitation. In the same way, the mind of man, enclosed in the compact channel of an habitual continence, and not having any side issues, will be raised by virtue of its natural powers of motion to an exalted love. In fact, its maker ordained that it should always move, and to stop is impossible to it. When, therefore, it is prevented employing this power upon trifles, it cannot be but that it will spread towards the truth, all improper exits being closed. In the case of many turnings, we see travelers can keep to the direct route, when they have learned that the other roads are wrong, and so avoid them. The more they keep out of these wrong directions, the more they will preserve the straight course. In like manner, the mind, in turning from vanities, will recognize the truth. The great prophets, then, whom we have mentioned, seem to teach this lesson, viz., to entangle ourselves with none of the objects of this world's effort. Marriage is one of these, or rather, it is the primal root of all striving after vanities. Chapter 8 Let no one think, however, that herein we depreciate marriage as an institution, we are well aware that it is not a stranger to God's blessing. But since the common instincts of mankind can plead sufficiently on its behalf, instincts which prompt by 
a spontaneous bias to take the high road of marriage for the procreation of children whereas virginity anywhere thwarts this natural impulse it is a superfluous task to compose formally an exhortation to marriage we put forward the pleasure of it instead as a most doted champion on its behalf it may be however notwithstanding this that there is some need of such a treatise occasioned by those who travesty the teaching of the church such persons one timothy four two have their conscience seared with a hot iron as the apostle expresses it and very truly too considering that deserting the guidance of the holy spirit for the doctrines of devils they have some ulcers and blisters stamped upon their heads abominating god's creatures and calling them foul seducing mischievous and so on but what have i to do to judge them that are without one corinthians five twelve asks the apostle truly those persons are outside the court in which the words of our mysteries are spoken they are not installed under god's roof but in the monastery of the evil one they are taken captive by him at his will two timothy two sixteen they therefore do not understand that all virtue is found in moderation and that any declension to either side of it becomes a vice he in fact who grasps the middle part between doing too little and doing too much has hit the distinction between vice and virtue instances will make this clear cowardice and audacity are two recognized vices opposed to each other the one the defect the other the excess of confidence between them lies courage again piety is neither atheism nor superstition it is equally impious to deny a god and to believe in many gods is there need of more examples to bring this principle home the man who avoids both meanness and prodigality will by this shunning of extremes form the moral habit of liberality for liberality is the thing which is neither inclined to spend at random vast and useless sums nor yet to be closely calculating in necessary expenses we need not go into details in the case of all good qualities reason in all of them has established virtue to be a middle state between two extremes sobriety itself therefore is a middle state and manifestly involves the two declensions on either side towards vice he that is who is wanting in firmness of soul and is so easily worsted in the combat with pleasure as never even to have approached the path of a virtuous and sober life slides into shameful indulgence while he who goes beyond the safe ground of sobriety and overshoots the moderation of this virtue falls as it were from a precipice into the doctrines of devils having his conscience seared with a hot iron in declaring marriage abominable he brands himself with such reproaches for if the tree is corrupt as the gospel says the fruit also of the tree will be like it if a man is the shoot and fruitage of the tree of marriage reproaches cast on that turn upon him who cast them these persons then are like branded criminals already their conscience is covered with the stripes of this unnatural teaching but our view of marriage is this that while the pursuit of heavenly things should be a man's first care yet if he can use the advantages of marriage with sobriety and moderation he need not despise this way of serving the state an example might be found in the patriarch isaac he married rebecca when he was past the flower of his age and his prime was nearly spent so that his marriage was not the deed of passion 
but because of God's blessing that should be upon his seed. He cohabited with her till the birth of her only children, and then, closing the channels of the senses, lived wholly for the unseen. For this is what seems to be meant by the mention in his history of the dimness of the patriarch's eyes. But let that be as those think who are skilled in reading these meanings, and let us proceed with the continuity of our discourse. What then were we saying? That in the cases where it is possible at once to be true to the diviner love, and to embrace wedlock, there is no reason for setting aside this dispensation of nature and misrepresenting as abominable that which is honorable. Let us take again our illustration of the water and the spring. Whenever the husbandman, in order to irrigate a particular spot, is bringing the stream there, but there is need, before it gets there, of a small outlet, he will allow only so much to escape into that outlet as is adequate to supply the demand, and can then easily be blended again with the main stream. If, as an inexperienced and easy-going steward, he opens too wide a channel, there will be danger of the whole stream quitting its direct bed and pouring itself sideways. In the same way, if, as life does need a mutual succession, a man so treats this need as to give spiritual things the first thought, and because of the shortness of the time indulges but sparingly the sexual passion and keeps it under restraint, that man would realize the character of the prudent husbandman to which the apostle exhorts us. About the details of paying these trifling debts of nature he will not be over-calculating, but the long hours of his prayers will secure the purity which is the keynote of his life. He will always fear, lest by this kind of indulgence he may become nothing but flesh and blood, for in them God's Spirit does not dwell. He who is of so weak a character that he cannot make a manful stand against nature's impulse had better keep himself very far away from such temptations, rather than descend into a combat which is above his strength. There is no small danger for him, lest cajoled with the valuation of pleasure, he should think that there exists no other good but that which is enjoyed along with some sensual emotion, and turning altogether from the love of immaterial delights, should become entirely of the flesh, seeking always his pleasure only there, so that his character will be a pleasure-lover, not a god-lover. It is not every man's gift, owing to weakness of nature, to hit the due proportion in these matters. There is a danger of being carried far beyond it, and sticking fast in the deep mire, to use the psalmist's words. It would therefore be of our interest, as our discourse has been suggesting, to pass through life without a trial of these temptations, lest under cover of the excuse of lawful indulgence passion should gain an entrance into the citadel of the soul. Chapter 9 Custom is, indeed, in everything hard to resist. It possesses an enormous power of attracting and seducing the soul. In the cases where a man has got into a fixed state of sentiment, a certain imagination of the good is created in him by this habit, and nothing is so naturally vile but that it may come to be thought both desirable and laudable once it has gotten into the fashion. Take mankind now living on the earth. There are many nations, and their ambitions are not all the same. The standard of beauty and of honor is different in each, the custom of each regulating their enthusiasm and their aims. This unlikeness is seen not only among nations where the pursuits of the one are in no repute with the other, but even in the same nation, 
and the same city and the same family we may see in those aggregates also much difference existing owing to the customary feeling thus brothers born from the same throw are separated widely from each other in the aims of life nor is this to be wondered at considering that each single man does not generally keep to the same opinion about the same thing but alters it as fashion influences him not to go far from our present subject we have known those who have shown themselves to be in love with chastity all through the early years of puberty but in taking pleasures which men think legitimate and allowable they make them the starting point of an impure life and when once they have admitted these temptations all the forces of their feeling are turned in that direction and to take again our illustration of the stream they let it rush from the diviner channel into low material channels and make within themselves a broad path for passion so that the stream of their love leaves dry the abandoned channel of the higher way and flows abroad in indulgence it would be well then we take it for the weaker brethren to fly to virginity as to an impregnable fortress rather than to descend into the career of life's consequences and invite temptations to do their worst upon them entangling themselves in those things which through the lust of the flesh war against the law of our mind it would be well for them to consider that herein they risk not broad acres or wealth or any other of this life's prizes but the hope which has been their guide it is impossible that one who has turned to the world and feels its anxieties and engages his heart in the wish to please men can fulfill the first and great commandment of the master you shall love god with all your heart and with all your strength matthew twenty two thirty seven how can he fulfill that when he divides his heart between god and the world and exhausts the love which he owes to him alone in human affections he that is unmarried cares for the things of the lord but he that is married cares for the things that are of the world if the combat with pleasure seems wearisome nevertheless let all take heart habit will not fail to produce even in the seemingly most fretful a feeling of pleasure through the very effort of their perseverance and that pleasure will be of the noblest and purest kind which the intelligent may well be enamoured of rather than allow themselves with aims narrowed by the lowness of their objects to be estranged from the true greatness which goes beyond all delight chapter ten what words indeed could possibly express the greatness of that loss in falling away from the possession of real goodness what consummate power of thought would have to be employed who can produce even in outline that which speech cannot tell nor the mind grasp on the one hand if a man has kept the eye of his heart so clear that he can in a way behold the promise of our lord's beatitudes realized he will condemn all human utterances as powerless to represent that which he has apprehended on the other hand if a man from the atmosphere of material indulgences has the weakness of passion spreading like a film over the keen vision of his soul all force of expression will be wasted upon him for if it is all one whether you understate or whether you magnify a miracle to those who have no power whatever of perceiving it just as in the case of the sunlight on one who has never from the day of his birth seen it all efforts at translating it into words are quite thrown away you cannot make the splendour of the ray shine through his ears 
in like manner to see the beauty of the true and intellectual light each man has need of eyes of his own and he who by a gift of divine inspiration can see it retains his ecstasy unexpressed in the depths of his consciousness while he who sees it not cannot be made to know even the greatness of his loss how should he this good escapes his perception and it cannot be represented to him it is unspeakable and cannot be delineated we have not learned the peculiar language expressive of this beauty an example of what we want to say does not exist in the world a comparison for it would at least be very difficult to find who compares the sun to a little spark or the vast deep to a drop and that tiny drop and that diminutive spark bear the same relation to the deep and to the sun as any beautiful object of man's admiration does to that real beauty on the features of the first good of which we catch the glimpse beyond any other good what words could be invented to show the greatness of this loss to him who suffers it well does the great david seem to me to express the impossibility of doing this he has been lifted by the power of the spirit out of himself and sees in a blessed state of ecstasy the boundless and incomprehensible beauty he sees it as fully as a mortal can see who has quitted his fleshly envelopments and entered by the mere power of thought upon the contemplation of the spiritual and intellectual world and in his longing to speak a word worthy of a spectacle he burst forth with that cry which all re-echo every man a liar i take that to mean that any man who entrusts to language the task of representing the ineffable light is really and truly a liar not because of any hatred on his part of the truth but because of the feebleness of his instrument for expressing the thing thought of the visible beauty to be met with in this life of ours showing glimpses of itself whether in inanimate objects or in animate organisms in a certain choiceness of color can be adequately admired by our power of aesthetic feeling it can be illustrated and made known to others by description it can be seen drawn in the language as in a picture even a perfect type of such beauty does not baffle our conception but how can language illustrate when it finds no media for its sketch no color no contour no majestic size no faultlessness of feature nor any other commonplace of art the beauty which is invisible and formless which is destitute of qualities and far removed from everything which we recognize in bodies by the eye can never be made known by the traits which require nothing but the perceptions of our senses in order to be grasped not that we are to despair at winning this object of our love though it does seem too high for our comprehension the more reason shows the greatness of this thing which we are seeking the higher we must lift our thoughts and excite them with the greatness of that object and we must fear to lose our share in that transcendent good there is indeed no small amount of danger lest as we can base the apprehension of it on no knowable qualities we should slip away from it altogether because of its very height and mystery we deem it necessary therefore owing to the weakness of the thinking faculty to lead it towards the unseen by stages through the cognizances of the senses our conception of the case is as follows chapter eleven now those who take a superficial and unreflecting view of things observe the outward appearance of anything they meet for example of a man and then trouble themselves no more about him 
the view they have taken of the bulk of his body is enough to make them think that they know all about him but the penetrating and scientific mind will not trust to the eyes alone the task of taking the measure of reality it will not stop at appearances nor count that which is not seen among unrealities it inquires into the qualities of the man's soul it takes those of its characteristics which have been developed by his bodily constitution both in combination and singly first singly by analysis and then in that living combination which makes the personality of the subject as regards the inquiry into the nature of beauty we see again that the man of half-grown intelligence when he observes an object which is bathed in the glow of a seeming beauty thinks that that object is in its essence beautiful no matter what it is that so prepossesses him with the pleasure of the eye he will not go deeper into the subject but the other whose mind's eye is clear and who can inspect such appearances will neglect those elements which are the material only upon which the form of beauty works to him they will be but the ladder by which he climbs to the prospect of that intellectual beauty in accordance with their share in which all other beauties get their existence and their name but for the majority i take it who live all their lives with such obtuse faculties of thinking it is a difficult thing to perform this feat of mental analysis and of discriminating the material vehicle from the imminent beauty and thereby of grasping the actual nature of the beautiful and if any one wants to know the exact source of all the false and pernicious conceptions of it he would find it in nothing else but this viz the absence in the soul's faculties of feeling of that exact training which would enable them to distinguish between true beauty and the reverse owing to this men give up all search after the true beauty some slide into mere sensuality others incline in their desires to dead metallic coin others limit their imagination of the beautiful to worldly honors fame and power there is another class which is enthusiastic about art and science the most debased make their gluttony the test of what is good but he who turns from the grosser thoughts and, and all passionate longings after what is seeming and explores the nature of beauty which is simple immaterial formless would never make a mistake like that when he has to choose between all the objects of desire he would never be so misled by these attractions as not to see the transient character of their pleasures and not to win his way to an utter contempt for every one of them this then is the path to lead us to the discovery of the beautiful all other objects that attract man's love be they never so fashionable be they prized never so much and embraced never so eagerly must be left below us as too low too fleeting to employ the powers of love which we possess not indeed only that they must first be cleansed from all lower things then we must lift them to that height to which sense can never reach admiration even of the beauty of the heavens and of the dazzling sunbeams and indeed of any fair phenomenon will then cease the beauty noticed there will be but as the hand to lead us to the love of the supernal beauty whose glory the heavens and the firmament declare and whose secret and whole creation sings the climbing soul living all that she has grasped already as too narrow for her needs will thus grasp the idea of that magnificence which is exalted far above the heavens 
But how can anyone reach to this, whose ambitions creep below? How can anyone fly up into the heavens, who has not the wings of heaven, and is not already buoyant and lofty-minded by reason of a heavenly calling? Few can be such strangers to the evangelic mysteries, as not to know that there is but one vehicle on which man's soul can mount into the heavens, viz. the self-made likeness of himself to the descending dove, whose wings David the prophet also longed for. This is the allegorical name used in Scripture for the power of the Holy Spirit. Whether it be because not a drop of gall is found in that bird, or because it, it cannot bear any noisome smell, as close observers tell us, he therefore who keeps away from all bitterness and all the noisome effluvia of the flesh, and raises himself on the aforesaid wings above all low earthly ambitions, or, more than that, above the whole universe itself, will be the man to find that which is alone worth living, and to become himself as beautiful as the beauty which he has touched and entered, and to be made bright and luminous himself in the communion of the real light. We are told by those who have studied the subject that those beams which follow each other so fast through the air at night in which some call shooting stars are nothing but the air itself streaming into the upper regions of the sky under stress of some particular blasts they say that the fiery track is traced along the sky when those blasts ignite in the ether in like manner then as the air round the earth is forced upwards by some blast and changes into the pure splendor of the ether so the mind of man leaves this murky, miry world, and under the stress of the spirit becomes pure and luminous in contact with the true and supernal purity. In such an atmosphere it even itself emits light, and is so filled with radiance that it becomes itself a light, according to the promise of our Lord, that the righteous would shine forth as the sun. Matthew 13.43 We see this even here, in the case of a mirror, or of a sheet of water, or any smooth surface that can reflect the light. When they receive the sunbeam, they beam themselves, but they would not do this if any stain marred their pure and shining surface. We shall become then as the light, in our nearness to Christ's true light, if we leave this dark atmosphere of the earth and dwell above. And we shall be light, as our Lord says somewhere to his disciples, if the true light that shines in the dark comes down even to us, unless, that is, any foulness of sin spreading over our hearts should dim the brightness of our light. Perhaps these examples have led us gradually on to the discovery that we can be changed into something better than ourselves, and it has been proved as well that this union of the soul with the incorruptible deity can be accomplished in no other way but by herself attaining by her virgin state to the utmost purity possible, a state which, being like God, will enable her to grasp that to which it is like, while she places herself like a mirror beneath the purity of God, and moulds her own beauty at the touch and the sight of the archetype of all beauty. Take a character strong enough to turn from all that is human, from persons, from wealth, from the pursuits of art and science, even from whatever in moral practice and in legislation is viewed as right. For still in all of them error in the apprehension of the beautiful comes in, sense being the criterion. Such a character will feel as a passionate lover only towards that beauty which has no source but itself, which is not such 
as one particular time or relatively only which is beautiful from as though and in itself not such at one moment and in the next ceasing to be such above all increase and addition incapable of change and alteration i venture to affirm that to one who has cleansed all the powers of his being from every form of vice the beauty which is essential the source of every beauty and every good will become visible the visual eye purged from its blinding humour can clearly discern objects even on the distant sky so to the soul by virtue of her innocence there comes the power of taking in that light and the real virginity the real zeal for chastity ends in no other goal than this viz the power thereby of seeing god no one in fact is so mentally blind as not to understand that without telling viz that the god of the universe is the only absolute and primal and unrivalled beauty and goodness all maybe know that but there are those who as might have been expected wish besides this to discover if possible a process by which we may be actually guided to it well the divine books are full of such instruction for our guidance and besides that many of the saints cast the refulgence of their own lives like lamps upon the path for those who are walking with god but each may gather in abundance for himself suggestions towards this end out of either covenant in the expired writings the prophets and the law are full of them and also the gospel and the traditions of the apostles what we ourselves have conjectured in following out the thoughts of those inspired utterances is this end of chapter eleven